Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Jacumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hey everyone, Lisette here, she, her, Aya. Each week, we bring you our take on all things happening in the world from the perspective of two BIPOC parents of transgender kids. Episode 31, Lisette. And we've got HRC board member and one of the sexiest men alive, Brian Michael Smith, on our show today. I'm trying to keep my cool, Stephen, but I can't wait to talk to Brian. Well, let's not wait any further. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Lisette. Time simply flies by. Episode 31, Lisa. And here we are. What have you been up to? Uh, well, yeah, no, it's been a blur. Like, how is 2024 around the corner? I have no it's idea. crazy. So no yesterday, idea. I went to a holiday brunch with friends who I went to college with that we've stayed connected over the years. But I think as lives have changed, as we've become disconnected from certain people, and so, you know, sometimes it's just awkward. So I had an awkward holiday brunch, you know? I think also too, when people won't ask you about your life, right? Or like advocacy, which is what I, where I'm like most immersed. It makes you kind of feel unseen and kind of not supported in those spaces. And so uh, I definitely had my armor on, if that makes sense. And it was so it makes sense. And I know you're giving me your update and how things have been, but I have to talk about the fact that this last week, two blasts from the past reached out to me. People I haven't spoken to in literally like forever since like college reached out to me both this yeah. week. And it's weird to have people who you know were not keeping up with you, were not checking in with you, you didn't check in with suddenly become all interested in what you're doing and, and where you are and want to get together. I definitely have that like, okay, what's really good with you armor up as well. So you are perfectly within your right. And I think you would be a fool to not be like, Hmm, something seems a little off here, especially if during those touch-ups, they didn't do anything to be like, Hey, I see that you and Daniel and Jose have, Oh, I just noticed that, you know, like if there's no reference to the state of affairs today, it means like, you know, something's amiss. Right. And it's just like, I don't know. I value deep connection. I want to know where people are. It's, it's fine to have like to talk about like nostalgia. And um, I'm also like 20 plus years older and I want to it. know where you are now. So yeah, it's interesting. And some people are just really good at just being like, oh, this friend group is this purpose and this friend group serves this purpose. And I just, I don't, I don't function like that. Me I either. I, I don't have that. I have um, to click and that's it. Yeah. Like I just, I want to like, let's, let's dive deeper. Let's be seen. What else is happening? Uh, I've been, Daniel's been playing the drums for Reverend Lewis's church. And I was telling Jose like that today was just really beautiful. Daniel was playing the drums. Reverend Lewis brought like this, like brought the sermon and it was just like really lovely. And I was like, oh, this is so nice. Like Jesus and justice can exist in the same space. And it was nice. So I felt like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not off like. What's, you're not fully off. 
I yeah, mean, like we've got not, Jesus and justice in the same yeah, place. Yeah, like, oh, okay, like, this feels good. So, yeah, so um, it was great. Daniel was like, I'm not going to lie, Mom, I felt it too. And I was like, right, like, it was good today. So that was nice, and it's always nice to see Lewis. And, um, yeah, we're just getting ready for Christmas. I mean, Jose and I and Marcel are, like, knocking out orders, getting artwork out because it's the holidays and Christmas is on Sunday for those who observe. And so when do you tell me about you, what's going on with you? You are headed out to the homeland. You're flying out this week, right? No, 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 no. So, so step back. You got me moving forward in time. Okay. Pump your brakes. So update kids are home for the holidays. Their Christmas breaks have started. I think the, the, the youngest two, they end this upcoming Friday. So the end of this week is the end of school for everybody. And then there's Christmas. Then there's New Year's. And three days after, we go to Nigeria. So kids are home for the holiday, holiday break, Christmas, New Year, Nigeria. That is the order of affairs. But because the kids are home for the holiday, I have now resumed like multi-big people food shopping. And my grocery bill just hurt my feelings. Like, I don't know if these kids think they're getting anything, any Christmas presents under the tree. I'm just going to take food from the refrigerator, wrap it up and put it under the tree. I was like, Merry Christmas. That's what y'all get. You get two gallons of milk. Two gallons of milk. You get the Applegate Farm uncured turkey bacon that you like so damn much. Like that's, that's <laughs> Christmas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what like you get the, the brand okay maybe they'll sponsor us uh, absolutely <laughs> applegate farms turkey <laughs> uncured turkey bacon this show is presented by y'all all right so come with the good the cash hello um or just I, the bacon or just the bit yeah dead ass like i gotta feed these big ass kids so i'll take some bacon send me a truck of that stuff thank you very much i've been fighting a flu bug set or a cold or something because i had the scratchy throat then I had the snotty nose. Then I had like the coughing through the night. It was just getting on my nerves. I've been fighting it for like the past few days. Luckily, it hasn't like kept me up through the night, but it has had me feeling like I'm a snotty nose little kid with blowing my nose and sneezing all the damn time. So it's getting on my nerves, but I feel like I'm, I'm at the tail end of it, but I hate getting sick. I hate being sick. I hate sick. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't You're COVID. You have to so. like get some emergency. Jose drinks it every day. I'm doing all the things like I've been sucking down tea. I should have it on an IV drip because like I'm I'm really trying to fight it. But again, it's fine. It's fine. Also, over the week that just passed, I think. Yeah, it was like earlier this week. We got an email from Lucina letting us know that the dads is screening with the Academy. And for those who are unaware, every year. There are a certain series of movies that screen for the Academy Awards, and depending on how they do, if members of the Academy select those films and they make the shortlist, then there's a possibility of Oscar consideration. So we are, you know, sitting by patiently, hoping that we do, in fact, make that shortlist. I told my kids about it. <laughs> they were like, do you have your speech? <laughs> I was like, first of all, I am not the director. I am not the producer. I am not the film studio. I am a subject of the documentary. So I don't think Lucina is going to be like, Stephen, any words? But I do actually have a speech prepared just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to die. <laughs> you, you're already ready. 
I'm like already ready the, already. You're gonna grab the Oscar from Lucina. I am. Mic. I'm just gonna be like, I'm gonna do like a, a, a Kanye West, Taylor Swift, you know what I'm saying? Full on stiff arm Heisman <laughs> Trophy style. Be like, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And then everyone's gonna stand there silently, like, what? like my what? Is it? <laughs> it's like, what is this fool talking about? I mean, I mean, I mean, Donald Trump doesn't care about black people. Wait, no, this is, not, <laughs> this is not the appropriate. That's not... I love that you have a speech. You're like, I want to thank. Right, first right. Of all. <laughs> first and foremost, I like to give God the glory. No, that's not. <laughs> there is so much more real stuff we got to talk about. So before we lose track of time, let's get into today's topics. about the LGBTQ Muslims who called for a ceasefire in Gaza in front of Stonewall? Dozens of LGBTQ activists gathered on prayer mats demanding an immediate ceasefire and holding signs that said Free Palestine at Stonewall, which, as you know, is the first national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights in the country. The action, which was endorsed by seven LGBTQ plus and Palestinian rights groups, was a resounding call for a permanent ceasefire from faith communities. Since October 7th, Israel has waged what many are calling a genocidal bombing campaign against Palestinians in Gaza, and they've killed more than 18,000 Palestinians and injured more than 50,000. According to the Office of Director of National Intelligence Assessment, reported by CNN, 40% of the bombs that Israel has used on Gaza are unguided bombs designed to maximize civilian harm, and it seems like they're accomplishing their mission. Hearing you say that is just devastating. And I think we are seeing how borders harm people, right? In like real time. And obviously uh, we don't support anti-Semitism or uh, Islamophobia on our podcast. And we hope for peace and a ceasefire in Palestine, especially in Gaza in this moment and that people are reunited with their families and that they can find some some way to heal forward, right? It's just devastating. And it's also really, really moving to see so many people across the globe step forward in this moment where we're seeing this violence unfold. And so thank you for sharing that. I hadn't I hadn't seen that in the news and I can't imagine uh, what a profound moment it was for those who were um, participating in this uh, form of protest in front of Stonewall, which has been, you know, ground for so many social justice moments and movements. And yeah, I think the significance of LGBTQ plus people calling for a ceasefire at the site of the largest uprising, actually one of the largest uprisings of yes. LGBTQ plus people fighting for their rights, fighting to be seen, fighting to acknowledge, pushing back against institutions that have marginalized and harmed them for decades at that point. But it's really significant. And again, what people are asking for is a ceasefire. They're yeah. asking for the harm to innocent civilians to stop. And I think that's really significant. Absolutely. It's so important. It's so funny that you say that because yesterday I got a text message from a friend who hasn't done on the ground organizing before. And they were like, how do we help? How do we organize in this way? Like, and, and help and be allies. And I was like, you have to connect to the organizations in the area that are doing this work. And so I think it's significant that it was LGBTQIA Muslims 
going in front of Stonewall and utilizing that space that has been a symbol of justice and calling for justice moving forward. You know, it's it's so important to, as an ally to support those organizations instead of replicating and assuming you know better than they do, right? Absolutely. And so it's, I'm, this is, it's it's moving and it's it's a hard subject for so many people to talk about and it's really great to see so many people being outspoken in this time too and i think it's important for us to kind of end on that note yeah for sure in a decisive move affirming the rights and protections of lgbtq plus youth on monday the supreme court declined to hear the first amendment challenge to a Washington state law banning conversion therapy. This ruling upholds measures in Washington and more than 20 other states against conversion therapy, a practice aimed at changing a minor's sexual orientation or gender identity. This is such an important move by the Supreme Court, who even in its uber conservative leaning recognizes the unparalleled harm that conversion therapy actually produces on children. And the fact that they refused to take this case and they did not accept that First Amendment challenge, like conversion therapy, that's not speech. That's not protected speech. That is not something that the Supreme Court is going to be like, oh yeah, you have the right to subject a person to conversion therapy under a First Amendment consideration. That's ridiculous. So I'm glad in this instance that the Supreme Court declined to take this case Although I suspect that this is not the only bite at the apple that these ultra-right conservative religious jokers are going to take in an attempt to push back on the rights and liberties of LGBTQ plus people. So three teachers sued the state of Florida over the state's law, which prevents them from using their preferred pronouns at school. One of the teachers who was transgender sued because despite the fact that she has changed her gender marker and her name, Students at her school are prohibited from referring to her as Miss. Another teacher who is non-binary is suing because they were fired for refusing to stop using they, them pronouns or the designation MX before their surname. The plaintiff's lawyers argued in the complaint that the law is a violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as well as Title IX of the Education Amendments and the 14th Amendment. And it stigmatizes trans and non-binary educators and students. How, in fact, is this law designed to protect children? Like, riddle me that, Joker. I am so glad that we are starting to see these cases come forward. While we know that courts are not always going to protect us, this is a really important case. And it could reduce the harms that we've been experiencing the last four years when it comes to policy, the harmful policy that's been passed in different states. When I read the article about this case, one of the interesting things that the plaintiff's attorneys called out was the law does not specifically state what harm refusing to use pronouns is intended to prevent. It doesn't specifically state how not allowing an individual to use certain pronouns helps children. It doesn't state how not allowing a person to use their preferred pronouns protects children from harm. Like it's so ridiculous. And these types of lawsuits are going to force the state of Florida to rationalize and justify these laws. Thank goodness for Title VII. You know, those of us in Arizona, for our listeners who don't know, when the Biden administration rolled out the guidance on Title IX, Arizona entered in a large lawsuit alongside Texas and Florida. And so if you go look at the Title IX guidelines, 
you know, usedu.gov or whatever, it'll say like, right now there's a current lawsuit, Arizona, it states all the, you know, Georgia, it states all the states. And that Title VII protection is so important in ensuring that you have one or the other when it comes to providing support for LGBTQIA youth and educators in the school systems right now. Absolutely. Ohio legislators just passed a bill that both bans gender-affirming care for transgender minors and bars trans girls and women from female school sports. The legislation is headed to the desk of Governor Mike DeWine for his signature, and LGBTQIA plus rights supporters are calling on the Republican governor to veto it. To his credit, DeWine has previously rejected similar legislation, saying that it doesn't warrant government regulation, but it remains to be seen how he'll respond to the latest anti-trans salvo. This is another one of those cases where you've got these ultra-Republican lower houses passing legislation that nobody wants and forcing the governor to either veto it or sign it. And in this instance, we we really hope that this Republican governor vetoes it because it's not worth the paper that it's written on and all it's doing is harming the people in that state, the trans women and children in that state for no good reason than they are the current victims and targets of this ultra-right movement. But my concern is even if he does veto it, do the lower houses have the votes to overturn his veto? Because that's what we've seen in state after state where a conscientious governor vetoes a particular bill that comes across his desk and these ultra-right jerk-offs have the votes to override the veto. Our listeners are getting a whole education on the legislative process just through these two you know, hot topics. So I'm so glad you brought them up today, Stephen. We said I could literally talk about this all day, but we've got to get to our guest. Let's do it. Brian Michael Smith is a transgender actor, activist, and vocal advocate for the trans community, known for his groundbreaking performances in his roles in Queen Sugar, The L Word, 911 Lone Star, Chicago PD, Girls, and Homeland, among others, His nuanced portrayals have earned him widespread praise. Brian's commitment to his craft is matched only by his dedication to fostering positive change within the entertainment sphere. Brian Michael Smith is not just an actor. He is a beacon of inspiration, pushing boundaries and challenging stereotypes. His unwavering commitment to LGBTQ plus visibility and advocacy has made him a prominent figure in the fight for equality. Beyond the screen, Brian stands as a powerful advocate for inclusivity and representation breaking down barriers, and reshaping the landscape of the industry. A member of the Board of Directors for the Human Rights Campaign, he works tirelessly advocating for social and legislative equality and protections for LGBTQ plus people. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Brian Michael Smith to our show. Yay, welcome to the show, Brian Michael. I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you all for having me for that wonderful introduction. All right, so we're going to get right to it. In 2021, you made history when you were named to People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive list. You were named one of the 25 sexiest men you can watch on TV, making you the first trans man to ever receive that recognition. I wanted to start with a really deep question. So what did it mean to you that you were impacting trans people in this way? I mean... it still blows my mind whenever people bring it up. I'm like, I can't believe that really happened because uh, <laughs> someone who just grew up, People Magazine has always been like a staple in my house, staple in the grocery store, uh, and just something that has always meant something to me. It's just like a, a, I don't know, like a beacon of the cultural zeitgeist. And so to be included in those pages, 
period was was huge for me but then to be recognized for my like masculinity my manhood to be validated in that way in such a public way was personally really affirming but then I thought about like what this must mean for the generations of young people because I was reading people magazine in my school library as a middle school student so to be a middle school student to come across this magazine and, and see someone you know like me in it you know when I was 12 would have like showed me that hey what I'm what I feel about myself is okay and and who I can be is, is possible and I can dream big. And so to know that I can be that for somebody else is like, I don't know. I don't know what the word is for that, but I feel very just um, grateful that I'm I'm able to have that kind of impact. Just grateful to, for that kind of recognition in general. And culturally it's impactful because people across the country get People Magazine, right? So mm -hmm. like you were in newsstands, like back home, everywhere, like we could see you. And yeah. so just culturally, that like affirmation of like, you are part of this list of 25 people will shift the way we talk about trans people in yeah, their like relationship with their gender identity, right? Like Yes, yes. And I feel like it shifted us away from the othering that happens with our community all the time. Like, you know, I, it's great to be recognized by magazines from within our community, but to be recognized with everyone else, it's like, we're not an other. We're just part of the same tapestry of manhood and masculinity, you know, that that exists in the world. And I thought that that is very significant. And I think it has an enduring impact that we need at a time like this when there's so much of an attempt to other us so that they can kind of strip us away from our, our rights and our dignity. And your wife can also be like, look, <laughs> that's my husband. Yeah, she's the opposite. She's the one who's like, bring it on down. I live with him, I've seen him and all, he's not sexy all the time. So she's my, she checks. Exactly, she's that keep him humble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in a variety round table, you stated that you grew more in your craft as you brought your whole self into projects. And your resume is one where visibility is at its core, like your breakout role as Officer Antoine Wilkins in the series Queen Sugar, which was executive produced by Ava DuVernay or Paul Strickland in 911 Lone Star. What has that experience been like for you and has it changed how you choose future projects? Very fulfilling. Very fulfilling. Um, I like to use the opportunity to act as a vehicle for my own sort of self-exploration. But I'm also someone who really likes to uh, to teach and to like um, help other people sort of, you know, find things in themselves. So being able to play characters like Twan or, you know, like Paul Strickland, I really am able to bring a lot of what I've learned about myself and my own journey, like into the work, but then also be challenged by things that don't happen in my life that, you know, can you know, be made possible by using the imagination and the magic of, of of TV and storytelling. So I can go further than my own experience and I can investigate even deeper than my own experience because I'm doing it in, in a way that's creative, as opposed to, you know, um, just advocating and speaking about myself. Like I like to do both um, because sometimes things are just really about, you know, me and my journey. But then when I get to play characters, I can kind of tap into the universal and speak to something that, you know, has a wider sort of impact and it's sort of... Uh, deepening of my connection to what it means to even be a human. And what about future roles? Like, do you, cause I know before you were also playing cis characters. So like, is that even exciting anymore? Like, yeah, yeah. Because again, what I like about acting is it gets me to, it takes me out of my own experience, but then I still get to paint from my experience. So then I get to bring my vantage point to somebody else's experience and then see what comes out of that or what that awakens in me or what that I might awaken for the, the person viewing the art or viewing the piece. So I'm interested in playing all kinds of, of, of men, 
or you know people who identify on that spectrum whether they have trans experience or not and showing the overlap and showing you know the uniqueness of each experience so one of the things that you said kind of piqued something in me when i was researching you i i noticed that you really have been challenging and breaking norms your entire life like i learned that you played on the varsity football team in high school and you were expressing yourself quite early as a youth in the way you cut your hair in the style of clothes that you war. And I was reading this something about when you got to college, even though you didn't have the words for it, you always knew that you were Brian. You always knew who you were. Where do you think you got the motivation to live your truth so early and confidently? I feel like that is a characteristic of just my personality. Like I'm, my mom was, I said, I was very self-determined, very strong-willed. And so I respond to kind of like the feedback that was coming in. So I was standing in my truth and then the world would be like, well, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. Like why? You know? So I was always sort of questioning and sort of just embodying myself in like in general. And then when, you know, uh, you start to get into middle school uh, and they really start to push the social norms on you. And then you start to realize like, well, I'll be on the outside or I'll be treated as an outsider if I keep saying or, you know, expressing myself in this way. So I have to find ways that allow me to express myself um, that doesn't cause discomfort for other people and doesn't cause discomfort and, you know, uh, antagonism towards myself. So I started to adjust as I got older, but I, I still tried to find ways to be myself and to pursue my, my interests. So I didn't have the language and I just accepted, I think, um, during that adolescent time, I guess I'm just different. And so I just accepted that I was different. I was like, I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to try to not be different, you know, until I think I gave it a shot. You know, when I was uh, 17, 18, you know, mom was like, you know, maybe things are so difficult because you had never really tried or like embraced just being a girl. And I was like, well, you're right. Of all the things that I have tried, I haven't actually given that a shot. So, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I, I tried, and I think, it, you know, 18, 18 months of that. And then it just was like, I, this isn't me. And like, it was really, that was, that was, I think what kind of pushed me into like my, maybe like the darkest period of my life around my like sophomore year of uh, college, because it was like, I don't know who I am. And I, and I, I feel like I'm pretending all the time. And I feel like I can't really connect to the world that I've worked so hard to become a part of. Like, I love these people that I'm in college with. And I really want to connect in this way that I see them connecting with each other. But at the same time, I cannot wait to get away from them so I can take all this stuff off and just be myself. You know, it was it was a really hard, like, weird, like, feeling. And I was like, well, okay, this, when this is over, I kept saying, well, when this, when this is over. And I'm like, when does this, when is this over? And it's like, I tried to picture myself down the road. I'm like, maybe when I'm an adult, when I'm married and I have kids, and like it'll all kind of go away and it'll be over and I was like no it won't it's going to come back and every time it, every time I suppress it you know my identity and like my masculinity and my maleness I can hide it and bury it a little bit enough and it bleeds out like it would be so like unnerving when uh you know I'd be wearing all these clothes and the jewelry and I'm trying my best you know to be like feminine and, and like and be accept that way and everybody's going ah, you're such a guy you're such a guy I'm like well, what am I doing this so like my s like I couldn't I couldn't do it you know and it's just like well what is the point of me you know doing this but I, I couldn't see a future for myself because I'm like if I see down the road and I'm like a you know a 30 year old woman I was like I can't even fathom that and then it's going to come back and how do I explain this down you know and like it doesn't end so what what do I do and uh, that's kind of when I had my moment of like clarity where it's just like just between me and my maker like what what do I do as someone who I know is different is there a way for me to like see a future where I can really just be and you know I felt like the answer was yes there is 
And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to explore this. I've never looked into it. I've always felt the taboo. I grew up watching, you know, nineties and eighties and seventies portrayals of what trans people were. And they were all like villains and victims and duplicitous people. And I uh, never saw anybody who was trans masculine, uh, like truly trans masculine. And I just didn't think that that was possible. So that day I got up and I was like, I'm going to look into this for real and see what I can see. And I actually came across a real live trans masculine person uh, came across Jameson Green's uh, website for his biography, um, Becoming a Visible Man. And like his journey for the first time reading, it was like, it really mirrored mine in a way that I hadn't seen before. And then to see that he was able to transition to become himself and like live this like life, this full life. I'm like, I have a future. I saw my path forward and I didn't know all the ins and outs how I was going to make it happen. But it's like, I could actually see that there was a future for me. And I've just kind of been on that path ever since. Okay. You just like unpacked a lot of things because these are the things that Daniel and I like love to talk about. And as a parent, before Daniel socially transitioned, there was always a disconnect. Like I knew that there was a disconnect. Like my child was hiding things, something, there was a wall. Um, and we'll have to talk about that another time because it goes off script of what Stephen is talking about. But when I was listening to the Man Enough podcast, because mm -hmm. like I I watched you on Disclosure. Like I think you talk so deeply about the experience of being trans in like these ways where like Daniel will be like, yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. And so we were, we do it. We have a long drive to school every day. And we were, we listened to the entire interview. So on that drive, we were listening to you say so many powerful things, but the two things that like Daniel and I were both were like, Oh, that's so good. There were two connections that really resonated. One is a really important distinction for cis folks to know, which is that throughout your life, your masculinity was intrinsic. It's like intrinsic to who you are, your essence. It comes out even when you don't want it to or when you're trying not to. And you also talked about how in turn, when you would be authentically masculine, it was then extracted from you by a parent or an adult or somebody saying like, no, right? And Daniel was like, that's exactly what it felt like before you supported me like this extraction, like of like, no, that's not real to what you're experiencing. And also too, like the need to integrate yourself fully. Like those were very distinct things that Daniel was like, yes, I know this. And um, the second was when you talked about your wife, Denise saying that she taught me how to receive love because everyone who loved me is going to ask me to give up something that is important and I don't trust it. Um, those two things drew me to a time when I asked my eight-year-old Daniel what it felt like to be a and he said, it feels like you love me. What has that connection to love truly, like that affirming soul seeing love felt like for you? And what do you want parents to know when it comes to supporting their children? I think, you know, the way you just reported back what Daniel said, like, that's exactly what it feels like when, when you can, when I can completely be myself and not fear that whatever I share is going to be extracted or judged or, you know, suppressed or cause harm to the other person, like knowing, like, I don't want sharing myself to be a pain to anyone. And sometimes I felt like sharing the things that have been the most precious and vulnerable to me has like inflicted, you know, pain that I, as a child, you know, have, you know, didn't have this, I couldn't hold it. I couldn't support the amount of pain that I was receiving from the person who I was like, I need you to hold me because I'm being vulnerable, you know? So that really set me up um, to be really protective and guarded, like as I navigated adulthood and to be really uh, uh, protective of like my innermost. So like whatever my deepest desires were, 
I'm like, I keep that to myself. And so when I was trying to be in relationship with my wife, you know, who's someone who's like, you know, draw, you know, really seeking intimacy and deeper connection and saying, I'm safe, I'm safe. I'm like, I don't tr know about that because even though people have the best intentions, they still have their attachment to their relationship to you. They still have their attachment to their idea of you. And so sometimes my truth is going to mess up that idea you have. And it's like, when I see, or when I know that who I am and what's inside of me is more important than your idea or your attachment to me, that's the most safe and secure and empowering feeling that like I have. It's really sustaining, you know, even if it happens for just a moment to know like you're willing to give up and throw away the avatar to deal with the the truth and you're willing to like hold it and be nice to it and be generous and kiss it and love it and show love to my preciousness that that that's above and beyond and like that will help me through when uh people that I don't know or like you know that's why I don't take and internalize a lot of like online you know nonsense or you know people it's like you don't know me <laughs> so it doesn't hit me in the way and I know what it's like to be seen and loved and held but if you never have that experience especially from the people that you love and care about the most it, everything that comes your way is 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 hitting you it's like you you internalize it. you can't help it you have no defense so that kind of love actually kind of gives you an at once an openness because you can receive like I can receive more of her now because there's that that trust and that flow but then it also gives it's like a guarding of nonsense like I don't receive things that aren't for me you know and I can kind of withstand other people's like that's projection so it's not that's you, you don't even see me you're, you're projecting something on okay so I can deal with you because I know it has nothing to do with me you know, but I, I wouldn't have that strength if I didn't have the experience of being fully seen and fully embraced. I know Lisette has another question, a follow-up question, but I just want to lean into that for a brief second, because I think it's important for parents to hear what you just said. Children are children. And when they are expressing who they are to you, it's probably one of the most frightening, intimidating things that they've ever done. And they're coming to you because you are that trusted person, you are that safe space, or you're supposed to be that safe space for them. And when you in turn turn around and tell them that what you're saying to them is hurtful, or it's disappointing, or it's anything other than acceptance, it becomes a double pain for that child who now has to deal with the fear and discomfort of telling you in the first place, the disappointment of your response. And then now the pain that they think they've caused you because of the way you've responded to them. And that the intersections of all of those things are debilitating for children. I cannot overstate to parents listening to this, how important it is that you're responsive or affirming and supportive and not what is me? What have you done to me? Look what you've done to the family. These are not things that children are, are built to handle at any age, much less when they're young children, recognizing who they are and trying to find a safe space to, to share that information. So I really thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that with us. And, you know, everybody who was listening to that other podcast, <laughs> because it's true. It, there's so much to unpack around that. Okay, listen, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I know you have something to say too, but I just want to say that, that your response and the pain, because I know parents have attachment to their idea of what their children are. Like, you can't help it. You imagine what, as soon as you hear that you or your, your, your partner is pregnant, you start to imagine my child, my child, my child, and all the things that are going to happen that you're going to be able to do. And like that attachment is strong and it, it feels so real. And it's not the child's responsibility to deal with your grief of that. So if you can take that grief and that shock and give it to your partner or give it to a friend or give it to somebody else so you can process that because that's a real reaction, then return to your child in a 
you know, in a space where you can deal with the child and what they're dealing with. That's, I feel like that's, that's the advice I would give most parents is your reaction to feeling a sense of loss. That's yours. That's real because you're losing attachment to something that has had value to you, but you, you, you can't deal with that on the child. <laughs> like you got to deal with that somewhere else so that you can be a parent to the child who's, who's, who's going through something as well. I love that you mentioned that distinction too, because I don't subscribe to the grief model. I work with families and I tell them that's a lot of um, societal things too. Like most of the time when they're talking about fear, it has to do with what society, how society will treat their child. And mm -hmm. so like, how do you disentangle that? I think grief is like this, like it keeps people from being able to like really think more critically about what they're saying because they can't look at it and say, well, actually it's not my child's fault. Like it's not really about their identity. It's about the world and the perception of me, the perception of my child, what might happen to them in the future. Mm -hmm. And also there were things I wanted you to talk so much more about it when I was listening to the Man Enough podcast. And I was like, I'm going to ask the questions I want to hear. Um, but I, I just also want to say to what Stephen was saying was my husband and I were, we felt a lot of guilt, right? Like, and so what we did was when we found um, a clinical psychologist that worked with trans youth, we spent a year of trust building. Like mm -hmm. that was really important for us to do like trust building exercises. Because while our child was eight and forgiving, there was a reality that he, there was a moment when he couldn't trust us with who he was. Yeah. and to honor who he was and like how do we rebuild that trust like yeah. how do we get you to like feel like you can be safe truly safe with us because that's what I was hearing from you right like was like you even said in that interview your mom couldn't really know you fully right because like so much of that idea was based on like her experience and proximity as opposed to like being able to see you fully if you could talk to your mom Right. And mm -hmm. she wasn't going to come at like, I'm your mom. So you can't tell me the shit, but like <laughs> to your mom and moms like me, what are things that you feel are the most important things that would have made you feel supported, affirmed and integrated sooner? Well, I mean, me and my mom, we've had lots of lots of conversations as we've evolved over the years. And what was challenging for me was just learning, you know, to see her as the person that she was too. Cause I, you know, I had a lot of like, you know, like angers, like, cause I wasn't fully accepted at first. And there was like th this struggle. And I'm like, you should be the one that has my back the most. And it's not that she didn't necessarily have my back, but she was uh, 19 when, when I was born. And so she was learning a lot of just how to be in general. And then she lost a lot of her stabilization and support because by the time I think she was 24, both her parents had passed. So she was figuring out all of this stuff, how to be a mom, how to live on, on her own without this, the support, you know, uh, that, that she had. And so, and she had a really close relationship with her mother. And I think she was really trying to replicate that, that sense of like, you know, that, that closeness with me. And whenever I was rejecting, like, I don't want to go shopping. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to connect with you in this way. It, it was, it, it, she took it personal and it almost feeling like, you know, am I doing something wrong? Because, you know, my kid and I were not really connecting in this way. And uh, they seem to keep wanting to get away from me. And it was like, I keep wanting to get away from you because not because of who you are, but it's because I what you say about what I'm interested in and you seem to you know keep wanting to make me change and not be who I am um and so I think around the time that we started to really talk to each other and really see each other I was in my, my my late 20s and I had a chance to stand on my own feet and she had some time to like be just herself because you know she went from being teenage uh teenage woman teenage girl to mom 
to who am I now? My kid is out of college. I don't know who I am and I haven't really defined myself. And so we were kind of mirroring each other's journey for a little bit. We were really discovering who we are as individuals and then like able to sort of come back and have these conversations. And what helped her sort of come to like a place where we could like move forward was uh, her like going, I'm confused. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I prayed to God and God just said to love. So I'm just going to love you. I'm going to focus on that. And that's, I feel like what, what really helped us. So one of our other uh, really close relatives had passed away. And I think a lot of the, like, I need, like I had this need, I need you to say, this is okay. I need you to agree. I need you to see this from my point of view. I let that go. And I think she did the same thing. She let it go. And we just like, we just love each other. Yes. And you, 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 you see who I am. I see who you are. I'm not hiding anything from you. You're not hiding anything from me anymore. And we're, we just love each other. We'll, we'll figure it out. And that started from there, like really helped out. So I think if she was able to sort of just kind of pinpoint that earlier on, because I think there was a a, a, def a defensiveness. Of like, I must be doing something wrong, right? I knew I was going to mess this up. And so I got to fix this. And I think if she would have able to let that go sooner in the process and just kind of focus on that love that she's been so great about, you know, since then, I think uh, it would have saved us, you know, some some growing pains for sure. Thank you for sharing that. Daniel and I always joke around because I was like, I really wanted a girl. That way we could do girl things. And Daniel's like, first of all, we go get mani-pedis all the time. And there's nothing like a son's love for their mother. And it's mm -hmm. true. Like, it's mm -hmm. just been, I've grown and learned so much. Yeah. Yeah, moms are besties, you know. <laughs> Beyond acting, trans representation is something that is evident in all parts of your life. You're a member of the board of directors of the Human Rights Campaign and Outfest. Why is advocacy so important to you? And what do you hope to accomplish through your advocacy work? Advocacy is important to me because I'm able, I feel safe enough to be visible. I feel like enough people uh, find me trustworthy and they're listening. Like I, I, audiences tend to kind of listen to me and I have, I feel an ability to speak and to share and to articulate things that are difficult for other people to articulate. So I'm like, I wouldn't have been able to come to the understanding and the wholeness that I have with if it wasn't for people who are willing to be open and to do that for, for me. And I don't think I have these abilities and these skills to just keep to myself. So I feel like it's kind of my purpose or the reason why I kind of go through the things that I go through and have the skills that I have because I'm meant to sort of speak and to share and to be open. So advocacy for me just is kind of like an intrinsic thing. And then again, it's like, we need to speak up. And some people don't have the freedom. They don't have the luxury to do it. They don't have the safety. They, they're visible, they lose everything. If they're visible, you know, they or they just don't want to do it, which is like fine too. It, it takes a lot, like it's a, you know, it, it takes a lot to be a, a visible person. There's a sacrifice involved. Um, and, and that you that you just don't know. And so it's like, sometimes it's like, you, you just want to transition and enjoy your life as as who you are. You don't want to be, you know, the advocacy, but you do other things, you you know, you vote for things, you advocate, you know, through how you vote, or, you know, through how you show up for other people, or you know, whatever, everybody has their different ways, but I chose to be more public facing about it, just because I felt like I had the skill set to do it. And um, it, I wanted to. And I feel like it's, it's just important, because I I don't feel like change happens without people who are willing to step into, you know, the forefront and speak. And I'm not necessarily an activist. That's not my strong suit. I'm, I'm not necessarily a person who like marches and, and things like that. I'm an artist. So I use my art to, to speak to things that are important to me. And then 
I've noticed that just using my own story by talking and, and I can reach other people that way. So I'm, I like, I like to do that. And when we have so many people working against people's freedoms and their rights, it's like, I have to, I just have to, otherwise I'm just letting people take things away from, from me and people like me that, you know, if anybody, if I, my children, you know, ask me like, what were you doing during the, the great, you know, recession of, of rights? I'm like, nothing, you know, I would feel bad. So <laughs> I want to do something while I can. So you, you actually raise a valid point. As 2023 comes to a close, we've seen over 500 anti-trans bills proposed across the United States with over 80 of those enacted into law. Looking ahead, what long-term strategies do you think are crucial for challenging and even overturning some of this anti-trans legislation? How can we work towards a more inclusive and equitable legal landscape for transgender individuals? I think paying attention looking at the framework that's being used, making the larger connections, because it seems like it's just, oh, here and there. And like, you know, uh, this is what the people want. And it's like, no, it's not. It's very strategic. It's not what the people in mass want. It's what's being encouraged. It's what's being formulated. And it's what's being, you know, pushed through by special interest groups. Um, like just flat out, the more people are aware of the concerted, organized effort uh, to make this happen, um, I think they'll realize, okay, wait, we have to, we, we can do something about that. We can join other organizations, kind of meet that energy where it's at. Um, and then also recognizing that what happens to one group of people happens to everybody. <laughs> so if they are enacting this against this, it's almost sometimes like a test case. Let's see how well this works here with this group of people. And what does it take? And I mean, that's literally what they did. They saw when they tried to propose the bathroom bills in, in 2016, they saw, okay, there's too much fervor here in this. Let's change the language a little bit here. Let's stoke a little more fear about, you know, let's make it about kids. Okay, let's do, and like they were really formulaic. They used focus groups to sort of figure out the strategy to do it. And they came back and they were able to do it. And then you see, oh, we're able to do the same thing with, you know, uh, reproductive rights. We're able to do the same thing with voting rights. They take the same playbook and they execute it across groups. And so, if you sit back and you let it happen to the others, you're just allowing it to get better at affecting and taking things away from you. So long term, I hope that people are paying attention to their elections. They're paying attention to what laws are being um, passed. They're paying attention to their smaller realms of government, like their school boards, like their, their city, their, their county, like Every every part of the legislative thing, just be, honestly be a full participant in society. That's that's really what is the long term like strategy that I could suggest. Pay attention and educate yourself. Use multiple sources and then take action as a as a voting member of of this society. Say it again one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> be a full participant in this democracy from the ground level up into the highest levels. Because a lot of the change that is happening against us is coming at this very small local level. And it's organized. Like the mom, they have, they literally have a playbook that they send out and they give. And they have people go from county to county, school board to school board, you know, city council to city council, enacting this and pushing this rhetoric, voting people out that, you know, were, you know, legally voted in and putting in the people with the special interests to then move this stuff forward. And, and that's how things are getting on the books. That's how things are getting passed. So please participate, run, not, not just vote, run for offices, run for these positions, but 
put yourself in a place where you can stop things that you don't want to happen and you can enact things that you need to have. We're in Arizona. So like people forget we're a test state because the Alliance mm -hmm. Defending Freedom is like 45 minutes away, an hour, mm -hmm. yeah, like an hour 30 from us. But like we were the first state to have a bathroom bill in 2013. Mm -hmm. So people are like, it's new. I'm like, no, it's not like, it's so gross the way that it's insidious. And I feel like when I tell people about this, they look at me like I'm a conspiracy theorist. They're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm just trying to connect the dots because it's yeah. so much deeper and well-funded than you actually believe it to be. Correct. Do you think that media outlets have a responsibility to actively address and counteract the spread of misinformation that often accompanies anti-trans legislation? How can the media contribute to a more informed public discourse? Yes, I think the media has responsibility. Like in order for a democracy to function, like there has to be a free press and there has to be access to information. It has to be, you know, balanced. Um, but what we're seeing is, again, this consolidation of media companies and tech companies and like singular companies that are easily controlled by their own interests and can easily control the narratives of which happens in the media. So then again, it goes back to us as the consumers of the media on what we're going to tolerate and what we're going to ingest and what we're going to share um, because they're serving their interests. Um, so again, voting um, against, you know, uh, you know, antitrust, you know, antitrust voting, things like that, like, you know, letting the FCC know that this is a problem that you don't want mergers to happen so that this doesn't happen like for like for sure. Um, but I, I, I really feel like it's it's us on this social media level, you know, and even then we, you have like the consolidation of companies there. But I mean, we still have a lot more power there um, and getting the information out that we want and combating misinformation um, by putting truthful information out there and by participating in organizations like offline where we can have access to, to real resources. Um, so. I would want, and in an ideal world, I would want the media to be better about it. I would like to be able to hold them responsible um, to do that. But by and large, it's going to be like kind of for the people, by the people, you know. Yeah, no, it's true. I'm glad you said that. In an interview with Kate Sosin for the 19th, you spoke about the importance of access to information via blogs, YouTube, social media, that allows folks to see a path forward in a sense of community when exploring transition. And you talked about how that allowed you to transition with ease. Daniel would say it was pretty much the same because he was able to access as he got a little bit older information online. In that interview, you talked about really important things like access to identity documents, access to public accommodations, we had to sue our state for Daniel's birth certificate, right? And so there's there's all these challenges and restrictions, but yet through this like patchwork of community sharing and resource sharing, people have been able to do what they need to do to be their full selves in the world. And so we're seeing now state legislatures and our federal government try to enact policy that limits that, right? Like limits what we can share online, that limits what people have access to in terms of medical care and or public accommodations. What do you want to tell trans youth who may feel like if this all goes away, we're back at zero? That there was a time before the internet where information was able to get around and uh, it'll be okay. Like it'll be, it might be challenging or you might have to adapt, but it'll never go away. The community is always present and there's ways in which we can get information. There's ways in which you can access it. Um, 
they'll, they'll make it difficult. You know, I'm not trying to like undermine that, but please don't lose hope in that, you know, we won't be able to communicate with each other or that the community is going to dissolve. We'll just adapt because that's how we've been doing it. We are one of the most resilient communities in the history of society. We will find a way, we will make a way and uh, we, we fight, you know? I love that because when we were at the HRC national dinner, we sat at the table with Chase Strangio and just a bunch of states just allowed those anti-trans laws to go on the bill and i was personally despairing as i was sitting with my son trying to keep a stiff upper lip in the face of all of these challenges and he said the exact same thing he said trans people have always been here and we've always survived in the absence of medical approval for us in the absence of legal approval for us, in the absence of societal acceptance of us, we have survived and we have thrived and nothing's going to change. And so I really do appreciate you saying that again, because as we parents of trans kids, we're always scared. You know, this show targets parents of trans and non-binary youth. And for parents, navigating these legislative challenges can be really daunting. So what advice do you have for parents who are listening who may be concerned about this legal environment and its impact on their children? I would say keep yourself abreast um, through uh, sources that you trust. Like, you know, sensationalism is is how the media like thrives and, and survives, right? So just make sure you have multiple sources of, of accessing the information, like in a cut and dry way. I mean, you know, follow Trey Strangio. I think, you know, um, Aaron in the Morning is, is a great uh, resource uh, online. You know, they have, I think, a, a Patreon or a, a, a Medium account where you can kind of subscribe to just kind of keep abreast of, of what's happening uh, and, and, and like in moderation and just across multiple sort of sources. And then, you know, stay abreast with 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 with, uh, with Chase Strangio because he's really great about, you know, getting out information of what's happening in the larger scale of things. And then the more you can kind of educate yourself on like how the... Uh, legal process works the the more kind of you can take a breath because you say yes they're going to enact this but this because they enacted now we can move forward with this and we can challenge it on the highest you know court in the land so there's checks and balances in place that we might not necessarily know about making appeals or like constitutional law that you know will help you sort of see that even if this is an effort even though all this stuff is happening the they can't all be enacted, or even if they are enacted, there's still legal recourse, there's still remedies, there's still something that can be done. You know, um, that's helped me out personally because I, when I when I was getting you know the, the alerts like you know in, in March that it's like we were already up to 400 bills, I'm like what's going to happen? That things play out over time, and again, this is part of a wave uh, that's a larger sort of uh, cultural effort, and we're kind of swept up in it right now. But these things ebb and, and flow, right? So, you know, the pendulum swings in, in both directions. So we swung out of the kind of early 2000, I don't necessarily call those the dark ages, but we swung out of those into like these really fruitful, you know, mid-teens and, you know, the, the, you know the, the trans renaissance it felt like where there was all this openness and all this access and all of this just, you know, like I was just like, wow, to be a kid at this time, like if I had just, you know, 15 years you know, later I've been like, have access to care, to hormone, you know, like to all this stuff. And it's, it was wonderful. And then it, the pendulum swinging back this way, but it, it, it keeps going. It goes back and forth and there's enough people. We can always use more. We can always use you, but there's enough people working against it. And I would say to make sure that that pendulum swings further back in the other direction, jump on, 
So get involved, get involved with organizations, get involved with organizations in your local level, um, get involved with organizations like HRC on a national level, uh, you know, check out what the ACLU is doing. They're, you know, the, the trans, uh, I can't remember the, all the initials, but there's a trans uh, equality organization that's all about like law and what's happening there. There's even organizations that will help you in your particular state figure out what it takes for you to get your legal you know, name changes and, and gender marker changes and all that kind of stuff. So there's still plenty of work that's being done to help us. There's still plenty of resources that are available to us. Um, and I feel like, again, because we're such a resilient community, we are adapting as fast as these things are coming at us. So like, don't despair but get involved and, and stay informed um, in sources that are not uh, set up for sensationalism. So I just had one final question. Now that you've had, because when we met you, we met obviously in Austin uh, for South by Southwest, but um, it gave me the opportunity to be like, our kids are planning this thing. And uh, in 2021, Arizona was the state to have the second highest number of anti-trans legislation in 2022. It was just as bad. It was exhausting, right? But we were like able to stop some of it. Um, but we did have like a sports ban pass and a surgical ban pass. And then in 2023, we had a democratic governor. So it gave Daniel a space to like think beyond legislative session, right? And so talking to his friends, they did trans prom, which for them was like, like joy in spite of. And so now that you've had like six months to like get to know our kids as like advocates and get to like having shared in that experience with them, what was that like for you? Oh, it was the most encouraging thing. Like I could have experienced like at that, at that time, because again, it was like, it seemed like the onslaught of legislation and even, and just culturally, like the cultural shift now we went from like you know, feel like everybody had your back and was pushing for, you know, equality for all like true equity to like, you know, people like withdrawing support. I think it was after the, you know, the whole blowout with uh, Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney. And you're just like, wow, we are, okay, the the, the tables have turned. And I, it's really sad to see like how many people are getting swept up in this. I was a, you know, a, a, a student athlete. I played sports and so much of, I think the character and my resilience that I have now as an adult is rooted in my experience and what I learned being able to participate, you know, in sports. I was like, why are you taking this away from like the kids who need it the most, you know, and uh, feeling like I don't want to despair, but it was really just a just very disheartening time. But then to see like the complete opposite of that, when the children are centered and affirmed and what they're able to do and how much hope and joy that they can have in the face of this great adversity, you know, when they're supported like that. And just, just again, like to feel that safe. Cause not only were like, it was beautiful to see all the, the young people like mixing and mingling and meeting and, and just doing what, you know, what, what kids do, but just to see how many people were supporting them on the perimeter, just how they were corralled, you know what I mean? And just people from all walks of life stripes, just there, like, encouraging them, supporting them, protecting them, guarding them, playing with them, you know, right in, right there, you know, in, in Washington, DC, right in the heart of kind of where all that nonsense was going on. It was like, this is exactly what is going to keep us afloat. This is exactly why I'm not worried about the future. I know we got some, some work to do and there's some, some darkness that we're going to wade through, but this is the light that's going to see us through. And like, they were carrying that towards like with joy. And it was like, all right, we're going to be all right. The kids are all right. You know? <laughs> exactly the kids are all right um thank you so much thank for you being so much with us. 
this has been an amazing interview. Like literally as you were talking, I was getting goosebumps and I was just like, Ooh, this is a good one. This is a good (laughs) one. Well, I appreciate taking the time, you know, uh, I love so much what you're doing just as, as not just, you know, advocates for the larger community, but just as parents, just to know that your kids are so loved and so supported by you too, is just something that just encourages me. So I'm so like grateful for, for you. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is trans icon Elliot Page. While technically his community is showing up in a big way, we wanted to take this moment to highlight that. Elliot Page has added his name to calls for the U.S. Supreme Court to reject Tennessee's law that would ban gender-affirming care for minors. The actor joined 56 other transgender adults, including other famous faces like Lily Wachowski and Nicole Maines, who have collectively demanded the Supreme Court consider rejecting the ban that was signed into law earlier this year. The ban, which has been widely challenged by families and advocacy groups since it was signed into law in March, prevents Tennessee medics from providing gender-affirming care like puberty blockers, HRT, and surgical procedures to trans people under the age of 18. In calling for the court to consider rejecting the ban, Page and the other transgender adults noted the detrimental impact that the ban would have on young people in Tennessee, noting early care for dysphoria has saved lives. And this is why Elliot Page continues to be a trans icon and our ally of the week. Okay, congratulations to Elliot Page. Now onto our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is once again, former president Donald Trump. Trump endorsed far-right bigot and anti-trans North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson in his bid for the governor's seat. Robinson, the first black Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, has repeatedly made headlines for his contentious remarks about the LGBTQ community. In a 2021 sermon at the Berean Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, he described straight couples as superior to gay couples and equated LGBTQ people to maggots and flies. These comments, along with his description of transgender people and homosexuality as filth, have sparked significant backlash and concern among civil rights groups and the LGBTQ plus community. Endorsing someone who is so divisive for highest office in the state is completely on brand for Donald Trump. He's gotta go. And that's why Donald Trump is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Brian Michael Smith, for joining us today. And of course, I'd like to thank my amazing and always on time co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for always holding me down. Thanks, Stephen. You know I got you. And of course, we couldn't do this without you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you've got to do to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. 
You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.